Um, here we are again uh, on live stream, again uh, as a churchwide, and we know that many have been tuning in the whole time via live stream, and we realize that uh, we've all been affected by the pandemic, and some people have been affected more deeply, some people are more at risk than others, uh, and some people have been affected economically greater than others, and we want to be sensitive to that and recognize that, and I know that uh, there are many people in our congregation, in our fellowship, who have lost loved ones uh, during this time period, and our hearts go out to you, uh, those of you who have lost loved ones, and we lost a dear friend in uh, Bishop Ford at Christ Temple, and uh, we're praying for all of you who have lost loved ones. Uh, and so here we are again today, and I woke up this morning with sort of this sort of defiance in my spirit that, you know what, devil? We might not be meeting together in person, but that's all you get today. You don't get anything else. You don't get my joy. You don't get my peace. You're not taking my faith. You don't get nothing else today. That's it. That's it. And that's kind of how I feel this morning. In fact, I was reminded, somebody texted me this morning and reminded me of a dream I had a number of years ago. And I'd forgotten about this dream for a while. Uh, and in this dream, uh, we were, my life group was downtown Louisville. And Louisville was under attack. Satan and his minions were attacking Louisville. And half the city was burning down. And uh, Satan was, in my dream, uh, and probably because, you know, I've read Tolkien, uh, Satan looked like a Balrog from Lord of the Rings, all right? So he had these big horns, and he had a big black bow, and he had these arrows that were made out of wrought iron, okay? I mean, and, and he was walking around downtown just indiscriminately shooting people, right? Just pulling, bam, and, and the arrows going right through people. I mean, it was gruesome. And I remember in my dream, it wasn't just what I saw, it's what I smelled. It was like a smell of sulfur. It was like you were smelling hell itself, and it was awful. It was a bad dream. I was scared, but I was trying to lead my life group to freedom, to, to safety. And, and so I said, come on, follow me. And we go down this, uh, uh, like it was like a, what I thought was a back road to safety, and it turns out it was a dead end. And so we turn around. I go, oh, that's a dead end. And when I turn around, Satan walks out around the corner, and he's looking at us, and he's laughing at us. He's going, <laughs> he's laughing. And he's got his bow, and he reaches back, and he takes an arrow. And I kind of get to the front of the group, and I'm terrified. This was not an act of faith. I was terrified. I'm like, I'm shaking in my dream. And he takes out his arrow, and he's laughing at me. And he pulls back, and he points it, takes aim right between my eyes, and he, bam, releases the arrow. And in my dream, I caught it right in front of my face. Then I took it and went, and threw it to the side. Right? And, then, and in my dream, Satan's getting a little nervous. So he pulls out another one, and he tries to shoot somebody else in my life group, and they catch it. And then they bend it and throw it down. And then he just starts shooting as fast. And even the little children, the babies, were catching it and bending it, yeah. throwing it to the side. And I was reminded of that dream this morning because, you know what? That's what we're doing here. And we started a message last week from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, which culminated with this verse, in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. See, Satan is trying to play us. He, he's trying to manipulate us. He's trying to control us. But we will not be played. Okay? We know who the enemy is, and we know how the enemy works. We know his schemes. Now, I would just call your attention to last week's message as we pick up from last week. I'm not going to say everything we said, but just to reiterate, we began to uh, look at the schemes of Satan uh, that are enumerated there. And number one, the first scheme of Satan was taking offense. We looked at this a little bit last week, that one of the ways Satan tries to divide us, probably his chief scheme, is to get us to be offended at each other. And this is one of his favorite ways to divide. John Bevere wrote this book called The Bait of Satan, 
which is all about this. And, and in this book, what he's suggesting is the word for uh, offense, which is scandalon, is, is actually the same word in Greek that was used for bait on a trap for an animal. And when you came in and, and the animal comes and takes the bait, bam, the, 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 it slams down, the trap slams down, and he's captured. And that's the same word for offense, and that's what Satan is doing. He's trying to bait us so that we take the bait, we get offended with one another, and all of a sudden we're divided. But we're not unaware of his schemes. Uh, this week, um, Marlene was reading this book, uh, The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, uh, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor, you know, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And, and there was a story in there I found very interesting. And I just want to read it to you. Um, he, he, you know, Mr. Rogers kind of known not for being judgmental at all. In fact, he's known as kind of the opposite of that. Uh, but uh, the lady who writes this book says, at least one time in his life, he felt that the word judgment fit him. And it's, the sting of it changed his life. He was in seminary at the time. During the eight years, he juggled classes and his first program for kids. As part of his studies and to encourage the development of his homiletic skills, he would visit different churches to see how various ministers preached. While in New England one weekend, he and some friends decided to visit the church of a well-known and well-respected preacher. But after the service began, they discovered the presiding minister was away, and a supply preacher, a rather aged one at that, would be speaking in his place. That was, of course, a disappointment, but Fred had heard good supplies before, as well as meaningful messages from older preachers. Unfortunately, this man was neither good nor meaningful. Fred suffered through the sermon, mentally checking off every homiletic rule the man was bending, breaking, or completely disregarding. The sermon went against everything Fred was learning in seminary. When it ended, mercifully, he later told me, he turned toward his friend beside him to commiserate. But before he could say anything, his words were muted by the tears he saw streaming down her face. He said exactly what I needed to hear, she whispered. That bungle of a sermon was exactly what she needed to hear? Fred didn't know what to say. But as he began to ponder the gulf between their reactions, he realized the essential difference lie within. She had come in need, and he had come in judgment. And because of her need and the sincerity of the old preacher, the Holy Spirit was able to translate the words, poorly constructed as they were, into exactly what she needed to hear. That experience shaped the rest of Fred Rogers' life, and it changed his neighborhood as well. He not only committed to reserving judgment, but he opened himself up to the mystery of holy ground. I'm so convinced that the space between the television set and the viewer is holy ground, he told me, that what we put on television can, by the Holy Spirit, be translated into what this person needs to hear and see. And without that translation, it's all dross, as far as I'm concerned. Now, here's the point that I'm trying to bring to you today is we can come to this situation that we're in today and we can come like she came out of our knee waiting to hear in humility, listening for the Holy Spirit, or we can come like he came, judgmental and critical. And when you do that, you don't get the translation. But, but I believe that, that if I come in humility here today and you come in humility, the Holy Spirit will take these words, as poorly crafted as they may be, and, and he will translate it to be exactly what you need to hear. Because if we do that, then we won't be offended with each other. There won't be this, this sort of, 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 of division that occurs. 
You know, it occurs to me that of all the people who ever lived, Jesus had the most right to be offended. I mean, I mean, like he created, everything was created by him and for him and through him, and yet he wasn't offended. In fact, I was thinking about this verse in John 14. Um, uh, when he's at the Last Supper, he's washed the disciples' feet, and they're having the supper. He says this in John 14, verse 30, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. The, the King James says, he has nothing in me, meaning Jesus lived without offense. He entrusted everything to his father. He had the right to be offended. Can you imagine? I can imagine Jesus, you know, saying to the father, can you believe this? Can you believe this? You believe these people? I created everything. It's for me. It's by me. And, you know, and I'm walking on the water. I'm walking on the water. And they still don't get it. I, I fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And they still don't trust me I can take care of them. I mean, if anybody had the right to be offended, it was Jesus. But he refused any offense. He entrusted everything to the Father. And that way he could say, Satan has no hold on me. And, and we should follow him in that. So last week we unpacked how do you do that? How do you live without offense? And we talked about blessing those who curse you, praying for those who persecute you. And I'm not going to rehearse everything we did last week except to remind us of this one statement. Don't let someone sin against you produce sin in you. Now, you, I'll say it again. Don't let someone sin against you produce sin in you. See, you don't get to choose how people are going to treat you, but you do get to choose how you're going to respond. And so when someone, and this is one of the attacks of the evil one. He's trying to get you to take offense at people, and he's trying to divide us, but you get to choose if you're going to take the bait or not. So that's the first scheme of Satan we talked about last week, taking offense. The second we mentioned last week is forgetting the gospel. Because every single one of us live our life according to some meta-narrative, some grand story. Uh, and that is an overarching story into which all of our little stories fit in and, and in which they find meaning. And for us, it's the gospel. It's the gospel story. Which is this, according to 1 Corinthians, that according to the scriptures, Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven. He lives forever. He's ruling and reigning. Jesus is Lord, and he's coming back. Right? This is, this is the gospel. And, and through faith and trust in him, we can be saved. That is the gospel. And it means that you have unsurpassable worth because our infinite God traveled an infinite distance to pay an infinite price. That is, that's our story. That's the gospel story. You are loved that much, and the scheme of the enemy is to get you to forget that story. It's one of the schemes of Satan. And we said last week that one of his favorite things is, is to get us to live in the story of our past instead of the story of the gospel. Remember we did a little illustration, and, and Shanette came up here and, and so marvelously uh, acted that out, you know, where the enemy was trying to get her to live in the story of her past, but she chooses to live in the story of the gospel. That's true for all of us. Because Satan wants to blind us to the gospel. He wants us to forget the gospel and try to live in another story, an alternate reality, an alternate story. And I want to tell you, one of the main ways he does it today, and I'm going to say this with some fear and trembling, 
One of the main ways he does it today is through the internet and social media. Now, before anybody says anything, it, it, you know, it sends in like a, something mean on, online right now. I don't know if, if, if live comments are shut off or not. But before anybody says anything mean or angry, okay, I'm grateful for the internet and live streaming because you get to watch this right now, and it's great. We get, to have the, we get to still have our services and connect, and there's wonderful things happening on the internet, and there's wonderful things on social media. I want to say that. And I also want to say the more power something has for good, the more power it has for evil. And so what the enemy wants to do is to, through social media and, and, the, uh, and the internet, he wants to build a different narrative for you to live in than the gospel. Um, and, and one of the best ways, I would just commend to you a documentary uh, that is on Netflix called The, Sho- the Social Dilemma. Now, I want to be careful. It's not a Christian documentary, okay, and it is an hour and a half long, but I would commend it to you because it reveals, it's done by people who designed social media, who were on some of the design teams, about how it's purposely designed to addict you. And this is the way this works. I mean, like, you know, you get on Spotify, you listen to a song, and it says, oh, you like this song by U2? Here's 10 more just like it. You know, you watch a video on YouTube, you like that? Well, here's 10 more just like this. Because one of the ways to keep you on, because the goal is to keep you online, because you are the product that's being sold to people in marketing. So they want to keep you online. Well, how do they do that? Well, they, they, they give, they feed you things that you like. Right? Because, you know, you know how it is. We all like being around people who agree with us, don't we? I know how it is. It's like, you know, it's theologically, politically, you know, sports, you know, you know. Louisville fans like to hang around with Louisville fans. Kentucky fans like to hang out, you know, Duke fans. I don't know if they have any friends or not, but they like to hang out with Duke fans. I mean, it's just, you just like, so what happens? You get online and, and oh, oh, you like this idea? Well, here's more like it. And, and, and what happens is you get in a silo and all of a sudden you're only watching videos or hearing people who agree with your opinion. And pretty soon you're going, how can anybody disagree with this? You have to be an idiot to disagree with anything I think because everything you think, think is being confirmed because you're only seeing this one slice which is being designed just for you to keep you online. So you know what's happening? You're being played. And you start living in this story. I got my story and my story is the narrative and it's not the narrative of the gospel. It's the narrative of social media that's been designed by an algorithm from a supercomputer. And all of a sudden, the gospel isn't the overarching story. You've got all these facts that were created for you. They were tailored for you. And the reality is you've just been played. And that's one of the ways the enemy divides us. We forget the gospel story and we live in another narrative, another story. But here's the deal. Paul said, we are not unaware of his schemes. We will not be played. And that moves us on to the third thing. Those two were just review from last week. Now I'm picking up and moving forward. Uh, And don't worry, I know that was a long review, but we needed to do that to get to this because here's the third thing that Satan uses, the third scheme of the devil, which he's trying to use in spades during the pandemic, and it's this, disappointment. A lot of people today, myself included, are, are wrestling or are battling against disappointment. What do you do with disappointment? I mean, how do you handle it when God doesn't do what you want him to do, when you think he should do it, how you think he should do it? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7. And hope there at home, you got a cup of coffee, you got your Bible and a notebook to take notes. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. I want you to see how John the Baptist and Jesus handled this. 
the disciples of John, this is beginning in verse 18, reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for somebody else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for somebody else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. I want you to see two things here, what causes disappointment and what to do with disappointment. Okay, first, what causes disappointment? Here we find John the Baptist. Okay, this isn't John a Baptist. This is the Baptist, okay? So he is the man, and yet he's got some questions. He's got some second thoughts. He's got some doubts going on because he's disappointed. I mean, I mean, I find this very encouraging. And, and you're probably thinking, well, that's not very Christian to be encouraged by somebody else's struggle. Well, I find it encouraging. Hear me out for a few reasons. Just think of John's resume. Think of his resume. He was full of the Holy Spirit in the womb. Okay, so can you imagine, you know, testimony night with John the Baptist? Hey, hey Pastor Carol, how did you experience the fullness of the Spirit? He gives his testimony. Hey, John the Baptist, how did you feel it? Well, you know, I was full of the Spirit in the womb. Like, where do you go from there? Like, that, that's the last testimony of the night. How do you top that? So this is who he is. He has a, this great pedigree as the son of one of the most godly priests in the New Testament. And, by the way, he's Jesus' cousin. Right? He's, he's a family member of the Messiah. He was so powerful that earlier people were asking him if he was the Messiah. They were going, like, are you the guy? Because you kind of seem like the guy to me. And he was like, I'm not the guy, but he was the guy who would announce the guy was coming. In fact, he said prophetically, uh, John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, prophet, he knew it prophetically before anybody else did. He was the forerunner, the man who would pave the way for the Messiah. And Jesus said about them, get this now, this is what Jesus said about John the Baptist, Luke 7, verse 28. Among those born of women, which is who? Everybody, because everybody got a mama, right? Of those born of women, there is no one greater than John. This was Jesus. This is, Jesus says he's ranked number one. That's pretty good. You know, that's pretty good. I mean, his resume is pretty good. When, when, he, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit came down physically in the form of a dove. The heavens were ripped open, and God the Father's voice boomed out of heaven saying, uh, Luke 3, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. He heard the audible voice of God the Father from heaven. I don't know about you, but I always think, you know, if the heavens get ripped open and I hear God's voice booming out of heaven, I'll never ask another question. That's kind of how I feel. I mean, I would never, that'd be enough for me, you know, rip the heavens open and, you know, Handel's Messiah's playing the voice of the Father. You know, I, I, this, I, I, I'm good. That's all I need. I would never ask another question. Really? John, the greatest ever born of a woman, full of the Holy Spirit from the womb, began to question. 
are you the guy? Or should we look for somebody else? Now, why? Why would John ask the question? What possibly could be so powerful that he's tempted to doubt what he has seen, what he has heard when Jesus was baptized? I mean, what in the world could possibly tempt the greatest person ever born of a woman to question Jesus? In an answer, unfulfilled expectations or disappointment. Now, there's really two kinds of disappointment here. I think you'll agree. During this pandemic, we have both kinds of disappointment, and the enemy's trying to play us. Okay? I'll give them to you. The first is theological disappointment. See, John had prophesied that Jesus was going to come in these connection with these Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would come and would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. That was the generally accepted idea uh, at this point. And, and, his, see, and fire was a classic Old Testament uh, um, image of God's judgment. God's fire was his purifying presence. It was his response to evil. So John is expecting the Messiah to come and to bring judgment on the enemies of Israel. He's going to deliver the Jews from Rome. He's going to set up a new kingdom that looked a certain kind of way. That's his expectation. But instead of that, Jesus is going around healing everybody. And what made it even worse for John is that the very people that he thought should get the wrath of God were the ones getting blessed. I mean, earlier in this chapter, it's a Roman centurion whose servant gets healed. And I'm sure John's thinking, what? Don't you know these things? You're the Messiah. Don't you, is, there not a, is there not like Messiah 101? Don't you have to pass a test to become the Messiah or something? Don't you know these things? I mean, just be John for a second. Be John. What would this feel like? You announced that he is coming but he's not doing it right. Have you ever experienced that? God, God, you're, you're supposed to bring the fire. And the, and the whole time, God's blessing all the people who don't deserve it, it which means he's blessing people other than you. <laughs> you know, all the wrong people in your humble opinion. He's healing the wrong people. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. But, but it's not just theological disappointment, it's also personal disappointment. Because see, just a few chapters earlier, when Jesus went into the synagogue and he was going to announce his ministry and basically give the program of what his ministry would be like, he summed it up by saying this in Luke 4, verse 18. Do you remember this? That his ministry would be characterized by freedom for the prisoners. Freedom for the prisoners. Where is John? In, in this, this is your opportunity, this is your OTR, opportunity to respond. Where is John in this text? In prison. And Jesus hasn't gotten him out, but he said that's what the Messiah does. I mean, it's what he said. He, freedom for the prisoners, he said. Not only that, but he's my cousin. I mean, <laughs> you can't get your cousin out, out of jail? I mean, I haven't hung out with my cousins lately, but I would hope if I was in prison, they would, you know, at least put it on Facebook to help me post bail or something. And Jesus said, not only that, but Jesus said, when you visit somebody in prison, you're doing it to him, but Jesus doesn't even visit him. He doesn't even visit him. See, this disappointment is more than a debate in theology. This is personal. Can you identify with John? Have you ever experienced any kind of disappointment that wounded your heart so much that you wondered if you needed to find another Messiah? Are you really the one? Jesus? 
Or should I look for somewhere else? Because I trusted you and, 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 and it feels, it feels like I got burned. And, 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 and here's the deal. If it didn't tempt you to look elsewhere, did it tempt you? Because see, this is one of the schemes of Satan through disappointment is to get you to modify your view of God. Okay, so maybe God isn't all good. Or maybe he isn't all powerful. Or maybe healing isn't for today. Or maybe it's not just for me. Or maybe his word really isn't his word. This is one of the schemes of Satan. It's one of the things he's using right now during this pandemic. But Jesus said, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So what do you do with this disappointment? What do we, do we, we're in a pandemic. We got some disappointment. What do we do with it? Let me give you three things very quickly that we need to do. It comes right out of the text here. What you do with your disappointment. Number one, bring your questions to Jesus. Now notice, John's got some questions here, but he does the right thing with his questions. He takes them to Jesus. It's okay to have questions. Notice here, Jesus never rebukes John for having a question. He doesn't say, how dare you question your cousin? He never says that. Did you notice, Jesus was never afraid of questions. You know why? He knew he was the truth. So the answer of every question is going to end up with him. As disciples of Jesus, we never have to be scared of a question. Never. Now, when people tried to trap him, they, it wasn't a legitimate question. Jesus didn't take too kindly to that, right? He had some harsh words for some people, okay, when, 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 they, when they were just trying to trap him. But when it was a legitimate question, Jesus was never afraid of it, and we don't ever have to be afraid of questions. It's okay to have questions. Just take them to the right place. Bring your question to Jesus. A lot of people got questions going to the wrong sources. So bring your questions and your wounds to Jesus. Listen, here's what you can be sure of. Jesus can handle them because he's the only one who's been wounded greater than you. Oh, you can be sure of that. And Jesus responds to John's questions with, with some things here. I find this very interesting. First of all, Jesus doesn't give John any new information. Did you notice that? He just repeats what John already knew. In fact, he repeats the information that was bothering John in the first place. <laughs> so just be John. You know, all this stuff is happening. Are you the guy? And he comes back and, hey, all this stuff is happening. <laughs> And he's thinking, I know all these things are happening for everybody else. I get that, Jesus. What about me? I mean, why, why do you think about this? Just, you know, think with me for a second. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus not give him any new information? Well, one reason, I think, is that in most circumstances, the key to your victory is found in what you already know. Most of the time. Most of the time, the key is found in what you already know. See, John knew, he already knew, he's the one that told everybody else Jesus was the Messiah. Listen, God prepares us in advance for the things we face. Now, I know it doesn't feel like that many times, but the conviction of heaven is you're ready for this, okay? And, and, and most of the time we think, you know, I, I need more information, I need something else. But most, but most of the time, if we would just take a moment to think about it, what we've already been taught by the Lord, what we already know to be true is already there. The help we need is already there. In, in, in Mark chapter 6, there's a story where Jesus is walking on the water, and, and the disciples are freaked out, and it says in verse 52 that they hadn't understood the miracle of the multiplication 
so their hearts were hardened. They had already been taught, they had been taught what they needed to deal with this one, but since they hadn't got it, their hearts were hardened. So here's the deal. When you are in a situation that you don't understand and you have no answers for, go back to what you know is true. Go, go back to what God has already taught you, to the basics. You go back to the gospel. You remember the goodness of God, the love of God, the power of God. You remember those things you know are true. So that's number one. Take your questions to Jesus. Second thing you do with disappointment, and this is a little bit harder, okay, is learn to live with mystery. Learn to live. Now, I know, I know that we are children of Western Enlightenment rationalism, and we expect everything in the universe to fit into nicely tailored categories, complete with labels and hermetically sealed so they don't spill on each other. I know. But have you noticed life is not like that? Life is not A plus B equals C. So you've got to learn to live with some mystery. And part of what I mean by that is that when, when something in our world seems to contradict what we know about God from Scripture, you don't just throw Scripture out. You don't change your view of God. You affirm Scripture and you say about the other thing, I don't know. And listen, I don't know can be a very freeing answer to be able to say. <laughs> it really can. In fact, just try it. Just try it with me right now. Let's say it together. Ready? One, two, three. I don't know. Don't you feel good? The, 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 the few people that are in here. And, and they'll watch it online. Don't you feel so much better? It's okay. We, we, you, listen, you don't have to have all the answers in the universe. We put pressure on people to have answers to things God's not even addressing. And a lot of people, as soon as they experience something that's disappointing, they're going through what we're going through right now, and, and they're in a difficult place, they will quickly jump to blaming God. They will begin to doubt his goodness. But listen, it is valuable to us to be able to live in the midst of mystery without blaming God. You know, there's, I mentioned earlier that Jesus at the Last Supper uh, he's washing the disciples' feet before they, before they eat, and he washes his feet and he gets to Peter. And he said, and this is fascinating. This never struck me the way it struck me this week. Uh, he says this in, in, in John chapter 13, verse 7. Jesus says to Peter, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. You don't, he, what, what's he saying? You don't, I'm washing your feet, but you're, you don't get it right now, but later you're going to get it. Now, when he said later, what do he mean? Did he mean after supper? Did he mean on Easter Sunday morning when he was raised from the dead? Is that what he's going to get? Does he mean on Pentecost Sunday? At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit's poured out and Peter stands up and preaches, a, and there's 3,000 people converted in one day. Like, like is, is that when he meant? Did he mean in eternity when he knows as he's fully known? What, like, what was Jesus saying? When are you going to know it all? Well, the answer is probably all of those, right? Probably Peter did understand a little bit more after supper. He, he did understand more on Easter Sunday. He did understand more at Pentecost. And when he got into the presence of God Almighty in heaven in eternity, he understood some more. And guess what? What is true of Peter is true of us. There's all kinds of things that happen in our life that basically Jesus is saying, you don't get it now, but later you will understand. Oswald Chambers puts it this way. He says, stand off in faith, believing that what Jesus said is true, though in the meantime, you do not understand what God is doing. See, here's what the Bible teaches. God is 100% good 100% of the time. That's what the Bible teaches. He's 100% all-powerful. 
okay, well, if those things are true, then why'd this bad thing over here happen? I don't know. But I'm not going to change my view of God because of it. I'm going to embrace some mystery because it is wise not to form an opinion when God isn't speaking. And here's what's going to happen. If you refuse to embrace some kind of mystery on some level, you'll either become bitter or apathetic or you'll deny some part of biblical revelation of who God is because God will not be reduced to a formula. I mean, I mean here's, here's, here's the thing. If you think you have successfully reduced God to a formula where you kind of have him in this box and you understand him and you can control him, what you have is not God. It's an idol made in your own image because God cannot and God will not be reduced to a formula that's not how he relates to his children he relates to us out of relationship so number one you're disappointed and you're experiencing this what do we do we don't play into the enemy's schemes we take our questions to Jesus we say okay we got some mystery here we're going to learn to live with mystery and number three this is very 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 important and it will change your day and your life if you hear what I'm about to say Be grateful for what God is doing. Be grateful for what he is. There is so much scripture here, I don't even, I can't even begin to get started. In fact, a good study, and I'm not just saying this because it's Thanksgiving on Thursday, okay? I'm, I'm saying this because there is a remarkable power in gratitude in the midst of disappointment, So a good study this week would be just get your concordance out, get your Bible out, and read what the scriptures say about giving thanks, just, just read, just take an hour and uh, take five minutes a day and just read what the scripture says about being thankful and being grateful. It will affect not just your spiritual health, but your mental health and your physical health, especially in a pandemic. Sean Aker is a psychologist who teaches at Harvard, and uh, he suggests that you can train your brain to become more grateful by setting aside five minutes a day for practicing gratitude. Take five minutes a day and, and be grateful. Now, this is fascinating. He, he, he cites a one-week study. Get this now. This, this is, and this is a study at Harvard. Okay. You, university. You may have heard of it. Um, they did this one-week study, okay, in which people were asked to take five minutes a day at the same time every day for one week and write down three things they were thankful for. Okay, now they didn't have to be big things, but they had to be concrete and specific. Okay, this is part of the study. You have the same time every day, whatever it's three in the afternoon or whatever time, every day for seven days in a row, write down three things you're thankful for, and it has to be concrete. You know, I, I'm thankful for that pad thai I had last night. You know, I'm thankful that I had that uh, Italian cream cake. You know, I, or why, I don't know why I'm talking about all my illustrations or food. Why, why, I, I'm just like, I must be hungry. Um, this sermon will be closing soon. Um, um, here's the point. Here's the point. They had to be specific and they had to be concrete and it had to be the same time every day. Now they get to the end of the study and at the end of one month, they did it for a week. The research followed up on the people who were a month later and, and some of the people had just kept on doing it throughout the month. And most of them though had stopped at the end of one week. But when they compared those people who, to the people who hadn't done it at all, the people who did it for a week were happier and less depressed. Remarkably, three months later, the participants who had been part of the one-week experiment were still more joyful and content. Incredibly, after six months, they get to the six-month mark, they were still happier, less anxious, and less depressed. And here's what they say, and I quote, 
the researchers hypothesized that the simple practice of writing down three Thanksgivings a day over the course of a week primed the participants' minds to search for the good in their lives. Wow is right. This is powerful stuff. Now, look, I know it's not easy, especially when you're in a pandemic. It seems like the world's going insane sometimes. It's very easy to become cynical. Like that second day, like you don't need a spiritual gift to be cynical. You don't need, in our world, you don't need any talent at all to be critical and cynical. You know, it, it comes very easy. And once you start looking for the bad, there's plenty of the bad out there to find it. But, but, but if you'll start looking for it, you know what happens? Gratitude protects us from that. A.W. Tozer put it this way. A thankful heart cannot be cynical. A thankful heart cannot be cynical. In other words, if you're taking time to find, uh, just think of the good things that God is doing, the good things in life, and you're focusing on that, you won't be cynical. Because you'll be celebrating what God is doing not what he isn't doing. And that'll be your focus. Listen, at the point of your greatest possible disappointment is the invitation to your greatest success because that is the place where you get to celebrate. You get the opportunity to celebrate what God is doing rather than being offended about what he isn't doing. And here's what you'll discover. You've heard us say this around here. If you've been around New Life for a while, uh, it's this. Gratitude makes room for God to fill. Now, of course, I don't mean geographical room. All right, God is everywhere. Okay, it doesn't need, like, you know, God doesn't need his own parking spot. Okay. I don't mean geographical room. I mean room in your heart. Because a cynical heart, a critical heart, is a closed heart. It's not open for God. But a grateful heart thankful, saying, God, thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for your goodness, all of that. It just makes room for God to fill. See, guys, when when you allow disappointment to control you, when you uh, allow offense against God to get into your heart, all you're doing is cutting yourself off from the only hope you really have. And it is Satan's scheme. It's his scheme to divide you from God. It's his scheme to divide us from each other. But here's the deal. According to our text, Paul said, we are not unaware. We will not be played. And in case anybody's wondering, let's be clear about this. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And what Jesus said about the church universal applies today to New Life Church. Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now um, that your Holy Spirit will do what we talked about earlier and just translate these words into what anybody, need, what anybody here needs, what anybody online needs. Lord, I pray for every person and Lord, watching by live stream in this moment, wherever they are, in their kitchen, in their dining room, in their living room, in their bedroom, wherever, Lord, that you're translating what they need. And Lord, we do do these three things we just talked about. Lord, first of all, right now, we, we bring our questions to you. And Lord, we're not, we're just gonna come to the cross right now 
and say, Jesus, here, we got these questions. There's some stuff we don't understand. We lay it at the foot of the cross. And, Lord, we we will learn to live with with some mystery, and we're not going to change our view of your goodness or your kindness or your love or your power. We trust you. And finally, Lord, we just, we want to be grateful for what you are doing. And Lord, I want to say thank you for the cross. Thank you that you didn't leave us in our sin. Thank you that you didn't stay dead. You rose from the dead and you are Lord over all and you are the the king of the universe. Thank you, Jesus, for the word of God that we have. Thank you that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that we have a live stream. Thank you, Lord, that we have food to eat. Thank you, Lord, we have clean water to drink. I'm just going to, I'm just going to invite you right now, just, just right now to begin to give God thanks for things in your life. And in fact, those of you who are watching live stream, I think it would just be helpful now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and, 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 and say the blessing and, and end the service and dismiss. But, but as we're concluding, those of you who are, who are with live stream, just why don't you just take some time. And parents, why don't you lead your kids in this to, to just sit there and, and, and begin to say what you're grateful for. Maybe everybody do, do what this study. Give three things. In fact, I would challenge you to do this this week. Every day, same time of day. Give just sit down and and write out three things specifically, concrete, that you're thankful for. And just tell God thank you. And see what that does. Lord, I just pray that over every person, over all of us, Lord, that we are people characterized by celebrating what you're doing and being grateful. In Jesus' name. Receive the blessing as we're dismissed today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.